Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Linux and Open Source News Podcast. And this week we have some very interesting things to talk about. First, the new FlatHub redesign is live, with a nice few new features. Second, the Linux kernel 6.3 is out. And on top of that, there's some serious performance boost coming to Intel integrated GPUs. And third, we have the EU applying their Digital Services Act that will have a big impact on big platforms. And these apparently also include Wikipedia, of all things. And we also have Microsoft Edge leaking browsing data to Bing. We have Brave Search being fully independent for its search results and a lot more. So, as always, all the links I use to make this podcast are in the description of the episode. And as always, this show is user-supported, so if you enjoy it and you like it without ads and sponsors, please consider checking out the link for Patreon in the show notes as well. So, let's get into it. So, the new and improved FlatHub is now available on flathub.org. I think it's .org, not .com. So, they redesigned the whole website. It looks way nicer, also a lot more muted. Uh, They used to have that really bright blue color, which was basically the staple of all web design for a long while, but they replaced that with a very dark gray, uh, something like charcoal. And their rationale behind this is to let the applications pop, because, well, FlatHub is here to let you get applications, not to let you use FlatHub. So they muted their own color palette so the application can speak for itself, and I think it's a good decision. Uh, They also added a few features to the website. Uh, First, the homepage now displays newly added applications, recently updated apps, verified applications, which is something new we're going to talk about. Uh, We already talked about it previously in in previous podcasts, but we're going to talk about it now. And uh, you also have the top-rated applications. And you can still browse by category. All the regular features are still there. Now, so verification for applications is a new feature, and we already talked about it, but basically what it does is add that little check mark uh, next to the name of the app developer underneath the, the name of the app itself, and it lets you check that this application is really what you're looking for, that it's coming from the original, the official developers, and that it's not published by a third party. So it basically lets you know that the app hasn't been tampered with, And so if you trust these developers, then you can trust the app. It's an important mechanism because when you download programs from your distro's repos, you basically trust in your distro to have done a good job packaging, maintaining, and testing these applications. But when you download from a third-party website like FlatHub, it's not something that either you just trust FlatHub to only allow applications that have been well-tested and maintained, or you don't. But when you have that little check mark that lets you know, yes, VLC, for example, is uploaded, packaged, and maintained by the original VLC developers, then you know that what you're downloading is actually VLC, it's not a repackage, and so you can trust it, because if you were going to install VLC, then you probably trust the VLC developers, so you're able to install that. So for me personally, it's an added layer of trust. It's even more important than uh, distro packages, because... Well, at the end of the day, I will always trust the original developers of an app I want to use more than a distro's maintainers or packagers, because they're not the original developers in most cases. So that's an interesting feature. 
Now, the app pages have also been enhanced quite a lot. Uh, they are now more along the lines of what you would get in a graphical software manager, like Discover or Gnome Software. They added, well, more details. You get the download size, the disk space usage once you install the app, the download numbers for that application, the various licenses it uses, links to various resources, how to support the application, and more. And so that new FlatHub website also now has a dark mode, which I'm pretty sure it didn't have before uh, on the old version, which means that if your system is set to dark mode and your browser actually supports uh, dark mode for websites and automatically toggles it depending on your desktop, then FlatHub will also be in dark mode. So it's a very cool new design. I really like the verification badges uh, because, yeah, being able to tell that the app comes from the people who developed it makes it way easier to trust what you're actually installing. And so this new FlatHub website will also be the foundation for what FlatHub wants to implement next, uh, namely user accounts for regular users, so you can get a list of everything you downloaded, re-download them, reinstall them easily, and also the ability to pay for applications, whether it's a one-time payment, a donation, a purchase cost, or a subscription if uh, app developers want to enable that. Uh, so if you want a more complete focus on what FlatHub is doing with this payment, I have a dedicated video uh, which I left a link for in the show notes. But yeah, it's a, it's a really cool redesign, I like it. It doesn't matter all that much in the grand scheme of things because, well, FlatHub, you generally just add it to your system and then you download the apps from your graphical software manager, whether it's GNOME Software, Discover, or, or Mint Software Manager, or whatever. So how often do you really go to the FlatHub website to download an app? I'm not sure, but I do hope that these features, uh, like the payment that they want to add, or just the, the official verification badge, uh, make it down to GNOME Software and Discover, so, well, people can take advantage of these features. Okay, we also have a new release of the Linux kernel, this time version 6.3. So this update has one big important feature, which is a better mitigation patch for the Spectre flaws in AMD CPUs. Uh, if you don't remember or if you don't know, Spectre was a vulnerability discovered in the very way CPUs work. And so the only way to fix it was to either redevelop CPUs that are not vulnerable to that, or implement something in software that generally tended to make performance worse on these CPUs. And so this new fix on the Linux kernel 6.3 should result in a smaller performance hit than the previous method that was used until now. So you can expect your AMD CPU to get a small performance boost. I wouldn't expect it to be big or anything, but there should be an improvement. Now they also added drivers for ARM and RISC-V power management, the NFS file systems now support encryption using AES SHA-2, and X4 should also get a performance boost for IO operations. And BetterFS got a faster driver as well. So basically the most used file systems on Linux, uh, X4 and BetterFS are now better, which is good. Uh, now version 6.3 of the kernel also brings support for a native Steam Deck controller interface, probably developed by Valve. Uh, there's also support for the Logitech G923 Xbox Edition racing wheel. The 8-bit Do Pro 2 wired controllers should also work better. And various Asus motherboards got support for sensor monitoring using the onboard sensors. 
Other changes include the support for Rust code in user mode. Uh, the Linux kernel is slowly adding support for Rust, write drivers, but now also uh, for user land, uh, user space uh, things, which is good because that's just another language that can be used by people to contribute to the Linux kernel. So the more languages are supported, the more people can actually contribute. It's a net positive. Now, there's also a driver for Realtek 8188EU Wi-Fi adapters, uh, Realtek being a brand that produces probably 10 new chipsets for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth every year, and they're generally not super well supported on Linux, so it's good to see drivers for those. And there's also support for the Qualcomm 7 wireless chipset, which will probably be more useful in ARM devices or phones. And uh, 6.3 also adds support for Hyper-V extended hypercalls on KVM, which should bring a little bit better support for virtual machines. Older ARM boards also saw their code being removed, like the very old things that just aren't maintained, nobody's contributing to this code anymore, so it's being removed. And new drivers are in for various single board devices like the Banapi R3, the Banapi M2 Pro, and the Orange Pi R1 Plus, which I would assume are all Raspberry Pi competitors. And also, if you had crappy Ethernet speeds on your Linux computer over, the, over Ethernet, you might want to check if what you have as an adapter is an Intel i219LM Ethernet adapter, because it turns out that this thing ran at 60% of its max speed since version 5.8 of the kernel due to a driver regression. Now, kernel 6.3 should fix that and give you the right speeds. Now, as always with the Linux kernel, your best bet is to wait for your distribution to push the updated kernel, which should not be long if your distro isn't an LTS. Non-LTS distros generally don't use LTS kernels, and so they tend to ship these updates pretty quickly. And I will personally check my Ethernet speeds uh, once I have the update, because in my Windows versus Linux performance comparison video, I noticed that all my Linux computers had worse Ethernet speeds than on Windows. Some were on laptops with Intel chipsets, so they might have that Ethernet adapter, and one was on an AMD system, so I guess that's not the issue there, but whatever the browser I used and whatever the computer, it always was slower than on Windows by about 50 to 60%, so it's worth checking out. Now, since we're on the topic of drivers, it looks like the Intel graphics drivers for Linux are getting a big boost in performance, up to plus 10 or plus 15% performance. And this regards specifically the Intel i915 drivers, which run most integrated Intel dedicated GPUs on Linux, apart from the XE graphics, which have been added, I think, since uh, 10th gen or 11th gen Intel. Uh, these as far as I know, use a separate other driver, which has been developed specifically for that. And Intel Arc GPUs, uh, the dedicated GPUs, also don't use the i915 driver. So if you have an older Intel CPU with integrated graphics, you will get a better performance once the patch is merged into the kernel. Now what this patch does is it allows the thresholds for when the GPU changes power states to be changed in user space. So either through a config utility or a config file, because currently these power states are fixed in the driver, which means there is no way to get the GPU to stay alive longer and to stop it from trying to sleep too often. Various tests show almost 15% more performance in CSGO using OpenGL and 13% more using Vulkan. 
Apparently, Google engineers were the one to identify the issue first, uh, and they reported it, and they would like to integrate uh, setting these thresholds into game mode, which is a little extension and program that lets a full screen app take full priority for your CPU. It's something that a lot of distros now ship out of the box, including Fedora, Manjaro, and it really helps give you that extra 5 to 10% boost in performance by making a full screen program or the currently active program on your display, uh, well, priority. It gives it full priority for the CPU and the rest in the background gets less cycles, basically. So as I said, the newer XC graphics or even the Intel dedicated GPUs cannot take advantage of that new patch. So it's for older devices, but I guess they're the ones that will benefit the most from that boost. So it's good. And it's always nice to see that on Linux. Uh, we generally have better drivers coming all the time, even for way older machines. Uh, it, let's assume that this driver concerns everything under Intel 10th gen. Uh, that's something that you would never see on Windows, for example. Drivers updated for these old devices to give them a 10% performance boost. You don't see that on other machines. Uh, they generally tend to get slower as time goes on. But no, on Linux, we still get fixes and improvements for these old devices, which is really cool. Well, old, older devices. Now, on the topic of privacy and regulation, the EU has now adopted their new Digital Services Act. And this is a new set of laws that aims to control more what big tech platforms do, how transparent they are, how protective they are of against misinformation or against hate speech and stuff like that. So this new act, this new law, will give big platforms four months to implement new content moderation, new transparency rules, and new protections for minors. Uh, for example, targeted advertising based on profiling will now be completely forbidden uh, for children users. So for example, uh, YouTube won't be able to target kids specifically with ads or, or Twitter. Well, Twitter, I guess Twitter is not really used by kids, but let's say TikTok. TikTok will not be able to profile kids to display them targeted ads. They will have to be completely generic ads, which I don't know, might even end up being worse uh, because, well, I guess you could still target with the age of the user that wouldn't be profiling, like you're not really tracking their interests, but showing generic ads might result in showing really weird ads that are, that are completely inappropriate for kids. So we'll have to see how this gets implemented. Now, the platforms in question are YouTube, Google Search, the Google Play Store, Google Maps, Google Shopping. So that's a whole lot of Google. Uh, then you've got Meta or Facebook, Instagram, Amazon, the Apple App Store, Bing, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, Booking.com, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Zalando, which I think is a website to buy shoes or clothes. Uh, don't know if you know about this outside of Europe or France, but in France, it's quite popular. Uh, and the last platform that is also impacted by this is Wikipedia. And these platforms have been picked because they all have more than 45 million active users in the EU. So technically, if another platform emerges and passes that 45 million users threshold, then it will also be subject to these regulations. Other smaller platforms are not affected. Now, this Digital Services Act sort of looks good, in my opinion. Uh, it mandates that companies and services have to be way more transparent on why you get recommended specific things. Uh, so 
I guess they would have to implement something like a little info button somewhere to tell you, hey, we recommended you this because uh, you watched this video and you liked this page and you generally seem interested in this topic and this topic. I think it's good to see that, yeah, there's a valid reason for the platform to push you this content and not just, this is what makes us money, so that's what you're getting. All these platforms will also have to let you opt out of recommendation systems based on profiling. So right now, you were basically only allowed to opt out of targeted ads based on profiling, but not recommendations. Uh, like the platform, you could say, hey, Facebook or hey, YouTube, stop showing me ads related to my interest. I don't like that you use my data for this. But recommendations you had no control over. With the Digital Services Act, now you do, and you will be able to say, no, I don't want to get stuff recommended to me based on my interest. Stop that. I mean... Probably that's going to result in a worse experience because, well, it's not going to recommend stuff that is as interesting to you. But since most recommendation algorithms already don't recommend stuff that is very useful to you, I mean, yeah, that's it's good to have the extra option. Now, these platforms will also have to give users easy ways to report illegal content and platforms will have to process these requests in a timely fashion, which, as always, isn't really clearly defined. All ads will have to be labeled as such, and the terms and conditions will have to be worded in easily understandable and plain language, which means no 2,000 pages of legalese that you have to read through that will you will never read through uh, to hide a few clauses and weird stuff and technicalities. They will have to have a version that is understandable by mostly everyone. That's, that's interesting. And those 19 platforms will also have to provide what they call a risk assessment on how they plan to address the spread of disinformation. So I guess they're going to have to try and provide solutions to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to fight disinformation or misinformation with these steps and these steps. And then the EU will say, okay, this, this seems appropriate. This is not enough. Not sure. So as always with EU regulations, it always looks pretty good and common sense on paper. Like you're always wondering why wasn't that already mandatory? But its enforcement is usually way more difficult, uh, just like with GDPR, which has been clearly written by people who have no knowledge of how data collection works, how website works, how cookies work. And so the language they used to, to describe the law was so vague and so easily interpreted that we, it resulted in basically a worse experience on the internet with you giving consent out of boredom because you cannot be bothered to scroll through 20,000 toggles that you have to uncheck. So I guess this one will probably be along the same vein. Uh, we'll have to see how well that goes. But yeah, generally with the EU, regulations are interesting on paper, but so badly worded that they're really either unenforceable or just super open to interpretation. And also, I don't really see why Wikipedia is here because none of these rules apply to it. Like it, it doesn't do targeted ads or ads at all, as far as I know. Uh, it doesn't do recommendation systems based on profiling. It doesn't really do any of that. The only thing maybe would be like how they plan to address this information, but that's basically how the Wikipedia model works, uh, which is anybody can come onto an article. Well, anybody who has sufficient experience with Wikipedia and, and good credit, so let's say, let's call it that, can go back to an article and say, you know what? No, this is completely untrue. Uh, this needs a citation. This needs to be removed. So it's basically the community managing itself to agree on what is true, what is fact, and provide the sources. 
So I don't really know what more they can do to address that. So I don't really understand why Wikipedia is there. I guess they just took a active user number and decided that this was it. Now we have a new distro release this week, which is BlendOS 2. Uh, I think I already talked about it a while back when they released the first version, uh, but it's a very interesting distribution that I added to my list of things, and so I wanted to mention it here. Uh, if you don't know about it, BlendOS basically lets you run applications that are packaged for Arch, for Ubuntu, and for Fedora in the same environment, on top of an immutable base. So you have access to apt, to DNF, to Pacman, and to yay to install all of these, and all these apps are installed and run in distro containers, so they don't get mixed and matched, and they cannot break your system, because, well, they're in containers. Uh, that's really cool. And they go even further with BlendOS 2, because now it adds support for Android applications as well. It uses WayDroid to do so, and you can install new Android apps from the Aurora Store or FDroid. So basically, BlendOS 2 is the distro that lets you run everything that is available on any Linux-based operating system, whether it's an AUR package, whether it's something that's been packaged for Ubuntu, for Fedora, you don't care. An Android app, you can install anything. And I think that's really cool because it basically takes the problem of uh, packaging on Linux, which is everybody packages for different things and everybody uses either Flatpak or Snaps or App Images or normal packages or the AUR or whatever, and it's a mess. And so this basically says, you know what? No, it's not a mess. You just use the package manager that corresponds to the package format you want to install. It's going to install it in its own environment. You don't have to convert the package or use a weird repo. You can use the official package that's been published, whatever the format. And you can even run Android apps. I think it's really nice. And they also have support for progressive web apps. And they are working on a BlendOS web store that will let developers submit web apps so they can also be installed in one click. Now, they also now include the NVIDIA drivers out of the box in BlendOS, which is apparently supported for all their container stuff, which means that all apps you install in those containers will have hardware acceleration. And they come with the latest GNOME or KDE desktops with almost no customization. They want to give you the vanilla experience. And so speaking of containers, they moved from DistroBox to their own container implementation that uses Podman. And they also reused a bit of code from DistroBox for that NVIDIA driver support, so all apps can be hardware accelerated wherever they installed. And you can also now set a priority for containers, so the new apps that you install will install to your favorite container first. So it looks like a very interesting distribution, and I will definitely give it a shot on the channel with a dedicated video, because honestly, it looks exactly like what I want. Uh, you have a rock-solid immutable base, and then you can install anything from any distro. And if it breaks or if it tries to install weird stuff, you just restart another container and install your apps there. It, it can basically not break. And that's really cool. If you're a Brave browser user, you probably know about Brave Search. Uh, it's the search engine created by the developers of the Brave browser, which are apparently trying to recreate a full-on web ecosystem. I would be surprised if they didn't introduce like Brave Mail, Brave Calendar and stuff like that in the future. Uh, so it's a search engine that used to use uh, results from other search engines, notably Bing and Google. They had their own index, but when that index failed short, fold short, uh, they added results from other search engines. And you could actually see 
how much of these results came from a search engine that's owned by Microsoft or Google. And so up until now, Bing apparently represented 7% of the query results that you got. But now it's been ditched entirely from Brave Search, which means that Brave Search is probably the only or one of the very, very few fully independent search engines that doesn't use anything from Google or Microsoft to get its results which is not only more private, but also escapes the potential censorship or recommendation that Bing or Google could add to their search results. Now, they will still let you enable Google result mixing if you want. If you feel that Brave Search doesn't give you what you're looking for, you can still add in some results from Google. And on this foundation of this debinged search engine, they're also announcing an API, uh, so developers or companies can use a Brave Search results to build their own products. Apparently, Brave Search currently serves 22 million queries per day, which is not nothing, but it's still a very, very small fish. Uh, DuckDuckGo is closer to 100 million queries per day, and Google is 8.5 billion queries per day. So yeah, Brave Search is not big by any means, uh, but it's nice to have an independent search engine. And obviously when you base your search engine, like DuckDuckGo uses results from Bing, Ecosia is basically just Bing but anonymized, uh, StartPage is just Google but anonymized, they all use something from Bing or Google. The issue is uh, the day Google or Bing decide, you know what, we don't want you to be able to do that, uh, if you run a competing search engine, you now cannot use our results. You have to build your own index. Well, they would be screwed. They would have no product and they would have to develop their own index entirely from scratch if they haven't started working on it. The only other engine that I know about that has part of its own index is Quant, but apparently it's really heavily supplemented uh, with Google or Bing search results as well. So it's nice to have Brave being completely independent, and yeah, I guess it's another option for more privacy. It's been a while since I tried it. Uh, the last time I did, I felt the results were kinda hit or miss, but maybe they've improved. Okay, while we're on the topic of Bing, it looks like if you use Microsoft Edge, your private data is leaking. Uh, the websites you visit are all sent to the bingapis.com website. There is zero documentation about what that is. Uh, the URL does not work in a browser. And apparently it's not by design, it's because Microsoft is bad at development. Uh, they have a feature called Creator Follow that's supposed to let you follow creators more easily on various platforms. And this thing is enabled by default. Uh, if you use Edge, it's in, uh, I think, the security and privacy settings. It's designed to let you find uh, various creators on other social networks more easily. It's not a terrible feature, I'm not sure many people use it, but it exists and it's enabled by default. And the normal uh, behavior is to notify Bing when you're on certain pages, like for example, YouTube, to help Bing help you find that same creator uh, on other platforms. But it is not working correctly. And instead it sends all the domains you visit to Bing. So Microsoft said that they are going to look into it uh, but in the meantime, you can head over to the settings for the Microsoft Edge browser. It's in the security and privacy, and you can disable the creator follow. Uh, if you don't, you're basically sending the entirety of your network traffic 
to Microsoft. And accidental breaches of privacy are always very, very fun, especially when they come from companies that have a history of not caring at all about what you want to do with your user data or if it's relevant to collect it at all. So yeah, another big oopsie from Microsoft, which is probably not a oopsie and more a thing that they did by design, but managed to mess up. I also briefly mentioned Caden Live's latest update in the previous news podcast, but it looks like they actually added a lot more things than what the KD Gear blog post led me to believe. Uh, and since Caden Live is probably the best open source video editor, I think it's worth mentioning here. So they added nested timelines. That's the thing that that's the thing that they talked about uh, in the KD Gear blog post. It's a super cool feature. It, it lets you split your main project timeline into multiple smaller chunks. And so when you work on one of these small chunks, you're not completely overwhelmed by everything else. And all the changes you make in that small chunk are reflected in the main big timeline. So you can work on little projects at a time that are part of a bigger project without creating multiple videos and trying to mesh them at the end. It's a really cool uh, new feature. But they also added support for Whisper. This is an open AI tool that lets you do speech to text on your video to generate subtitles, for example, and in a variety of languages, complete with punctuation. And I think it's going to be very, very useful, even for people who don't use Caden Live, because you could basically just drop any video in there and it will automatically generate subtitles. Now, of course, it's not going to be perfect. It's probably like on par with the auto YouTube subtitles thing. But if you want to create subtitles for your video, it saves you a ton of work and you can generate them in multiple languages as well. So you could just fix up the main language and then let it translate it because as I understand, that's what it does. And it's GPU accelerated as well, so it's reasonably fast. They also added some new effects like a new timer effect that lets you count time up or down and, and display that on your video. And there are new transitions to move from uh, clip to clip, like a slide, a push, a wipe, a barn door, a circle, a rectangle. And they also added the ability to download uh, user-made templates that are made by the community from the get new stuff button in Caden Live, which means that you can actually enrich the transition library that you use with what other people do, which is really, really cool. So basically with all of that, Caden Live is ready for me to replace Resolve, apart from one thing, which is hardware acceleration. Uh, all the transitions that I use can now be completely replicated in Caden Live. The title editor is now good enough that I could do these animated titles nicely. And the subtitles feature is actually non-existent in Resolve, as far as I know. So that's really good. But yeah, for the hardware acceleration, well, they also have plans to work on that. Uh, that's probably the most important part of their update post. It's a small line at the end of their intro paragraph. And they say that before the end of the year, they will move Cadenlife to Qt6. And this comes with improved GPU support. So maybe, finally, Cadenlife will have good hardware acceleration. And maybe it will be time for me to ditch Resolve and try using Cadenlife again for a completely fast workflow, which would be really good because it would mean complete independence from any GPU vendor. It means I could do touch-ups on the go with any laptop that I own. I would not have to run a dedicated NVIDIA GPU to be able to have a video editor, which is really cool. So I'm super excited to see 
how well that hardware acceleration will work. Is it just the program, the UI of the program that will be accelerated? Or is it also all the playback, uh, the rendering that will be? I'll have to wait and see. But yeah, once they add that, I could definitely see myself moving back to it. Now, this will be more than a very small tip uh, than actual news. Uh, you might have noticed on Ubuntu 23.04, if you made a fresh install, that app image support is still not there by default. A few versions ago, Ubuntu moved uh, to Fuse 3, uh, while most app images use Fuse 2, which means that app images don't work by default on a fresh Ubuntu install uh, since, I think, 22.04. So fortunately, there's a fix. Uh, you can install Fuse 2 alongside Fuse 3, and so you can restore your app images to working status. The package you need to install is called libfuse2, and that's it. And it's not Ubuntu being nefarious so that people only use snaps. It's not a voluntary thing to break app images. It's mainly because Fuse 2 is unmaintained. It's a very old version and Fuse 3 is better in every single aspect, and AppImage developers haven't moved to Fuse 3 yet. Uh, distributions not shipping unmaintained software by default is normal and actually a good thing, and at least they give you the option to install it anyway. So if you move to a recent version of Ubuntu recently and you were wondering why your app images aren't working, well, there you go. You can fix that easily in one command line. It's sudo apt install libfuse2, and you're done. Okay, and now we have a bunch of gaming-related news. Uh, so first, we've got Lux Torpeda, uh, which is a compatibility layer that you can add to Steam to run Windows games, but using an engine that has native Linux support. Uh, so instead of being a compatibility layer that will translate, like Proton is, that will translate the Windows game entirely, engine included, uh, and make it usable and playable on Linux, uh, this basically says, okay, you're playing this game, uh, there's this open source engine uh, or just this native engine for Linux that can run using the original files, so we're going to use that instead. Uh, so for example, there's Morrowind, which you can play using the open Morrowind engine instead of the native one. Uh, well, the, the default official uh, Morrowind engine that they developed back in the day. And these native engines generally are better than the older ones. They have more features, then they tend to run better. They generally have widescreen support. They generally let you change the field of view to way wider than what you were able to do. They have more options, better performance. They are generally always a good idea. And there are a lot of supported games by Lux Torpeda, including Ox Fatalis, Kaiser 3, various Doom games, and all Doom engine-based games. Homeworld 1, Quake 1, 2, 3, and 4, Return to Castle Wolfenstein, all the Stalker games, Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2, and of course Morrowind and older Elder Scrolls titles as well. So this new version is already available, you can download it, and it installs just like a custom version of Proton, and then you can select it inside of Steam, you can say Force a Compatibility Tool in the properties of the game, and select Lux Torpeda from here, and it will automatically download the relevant engine, install it, and let you run the game with it. So it's a really cool tool if you play older games and you want them to support your computer better. Now, it also looks like there's a new Steam Deck revision spotted in the wild. And don't expect a Steam Deck Pro or a Steam Deck 2. It seems like it's mostly moving components around, but also revising the whole heatsink and fan assembly. 
They also moved the audio cable, which before crossed over the battery, which made replacing the battery a bit more dangerous. You could rip off that cable. So now it's, it's alongside the battery. So yeah, disassembly is now easier. Now this is all leaked images for now. This new revision isn't out yet. And potentially the only thing it could change is thermals. Uh, with a newer heatsink design and another fan, you might get better cooling. And so you might get more sustained performance or small gains in battery life. It's not a huge revolution, but it's still interesting because it means that Valve is still iterating on the Steam Deck and they're still trying to improve the original design without releasing a brand new Steam Deck 2 something. But... Uh, they might want to do that, because AMD officially confirmed their new line of Z1 Ryzen chips. These chips are specifically made to go into handheld PCs, like the Steam Deck, or more accurately in this case, the ROG Ally, which will be the first device to make use of these chips. So they have two CPUs, the Z1 and Z1 Extreme, with respectively 6 cores and 8 cores, and 4 or 12 RDNA 3 compute units. Uh, we'll have to wait for the Ally to officially release before we can get any benchmarks, but it's really cool to see dedicated chips for gaming on the go, and it means that in the future, should we have a Steam Deck 2 or Steam Deck Pro, it will have more tailored chips for what they use, because the CPU, well, the APU they use currently was designed with AMD specifically for the Steam Deck, but I would guess that AMD learned from that first iteration and is now making a specifically dedicated product that other manufacturers can use. And so obviously it's going to be better. It's going to be one or two generations newer than what the Steam Deck uses and it's probably going to be more efficient in terms of battery and should deliver on paper at least a lot more power than what the Steam Deck is currently capable of. So we'll have to wait for the benchmarks on the ROG Ally. They're going to be hard to compare because that thing runs Windows 11. And until there are drivers for the Z1 and Z1 Extreme chips for Linux, we won't be able to install SteamOS on it and run it properly. But I am very excited to see what the performance results will be and if it's something we can look forward to. Okay, now to finish this, we have a big new Steam beta that you can get for the Steam desktop client on Linux. It comes with a big redesign. Uh, first, the general interface with the store, library, community, profile tabs. Uh, this has all been redesigned. All the menus of the application have also been redesigned. The notifications menu, the invites menu, they all now look a lot more, well, a lot closer to what the new big picture mode, the interface you get on the Steam Deck looks like. So it's more harmonious around the client and it's way better. They also redesigned uh, the overlay completely. Uh, it's that thing you can call with shift plus tab when you're in a game. Uh, it displays friends, uh, chats, achievements, guides, a web browser. So this has all been redesigned also to look more like everything else on the big picture mode. You also now get a new notes app that's synced in the cloud for each game. So you can take notes for the game and get those notes on any other computer. So for example, if you want to remind yourself to go check out this area or when you fight this boss, don't forget to do this. Or if you're tracking an achievement and you need to remember that when you come to a specific area, you need to do something, you can write it down. And you can also now pin certain elements of the overlay on top of the game. 
Which means, for example, you could have a, an achievement guide pinned on the side with your game full screen. And this achievement guide will be semi-transparent unless you specifically go over it. Uh, it's, it's a really nice improvement. And, best of all, the whole Steam desktop client is now hardware accelerated on Linux. Just like it always was on Windows or Mac OS. Which means it should be way more responsive when you resize, when you scroll, when you navigate especially on high-resolution displays. Uh, on everything from 1440p to 4K, I had huge slowdowns and lags and stutters in the Steam desktop client. Uh, because, well, it was just using the CPU and rendering that many pixels is not easy for a CPU. So now the GPU will be able to render these things, and so it's way, way better. I already installed uh, that Steam Deck beta uh, on my main PC, and yeah, the changes are really cool and the client does feel a lot snappier and a lot more responsive. And if you want to get those improvements as well, you can just head over to the Steam Preferences and I think it's in the main, the first tab, you, can, you have a, a beta button named Change. You can click that, select the beta, your Steam client will reboot and update. And there you go, you have everything. And if you don't like it or it's buggy, you can always go back to the same settings and revert to not the beta channel if everything, if anything goes wrong. So it's really cool to see Valve also improving the desktop client, not just working uh, on the Steam Deck big picture mode. They apparently say that this work is the result of the new big picture mode, that they learned a lot by doing this one, and so they wanted to bring these improvements to the main desktop client. So that's really cool. And it's really cool that they thought about Linux and they're also improving the Linux experience. And not just saying our Linux experience is Steam Deck, the rest we don't care about. I think it's really nice. So now they all they have to do is fix the big picture mode on NVIDIA GPUs on Linux because it's still absolutely unusable and a stuttery mess. So they need to figure this out and fix it. And then I will be happy. So this concludes this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links to the various articles are in the show notes and all the links to follow me elsewhere on YouTube, Mastodon, or to help support the show are in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening and I guess you'll hear me in the next one. Bye.